Welcome back to Freud in Focus for this final stage of our journey, looking at the ultimate chapter of civilization and its discontents. We'll begin this episode by reading the first paragraph of chapter 8. Having reached the end of this journey, the author must ask his reader's forgiveness for not having been more skillful guide and for not having spared them empty stretches of road and troublesome detours. There is no doubt that it could have been done better. I will attempt, late in the day, to make some amends. Freud does make me laugh a bit. You know, he has started almost every chapter in this sort of apologetic manner, <laughs> despite going on to actually make some very fascinating observations in the subsequent paragraphs. What's he saying here, Tom, and how will he go on to make amends in the text that follows? Yeah, well, firstly, Jamie, I think chapter eight feels almost a little like a standalone paper, kind of a bit like a coda in music. So similarly with chapter one, which was a variation on a theme of the oceanic in a way, here we have the summation, don't we? The, the coda, which appears to be somehow self-contained almost. And I think we can also take Freud at, at face value here, even though, as you say, it is quite an amusing uh, position. And the text has been full of detours, really, hasn't it? Even though it's been full of fascinating observations, as you say, it hasn't really had a rigorous structure. This is also what makes it so rich and compelling, I think. It's, so it's kind of polyphonic in a way. What disrupts the structure, according to Freud himself, is the discussion of the sense of guilt, which takes up too much space, he writes, and pushes to one side the rest of the subject matter, to which it's not too closely related. So the true subject matter of the text, then, is the sense of guilt. Freud goes on to describe it as the most important problem in the development of civilization. The development of civilization, then, and the heightening of the sense of guilt are mutually dependent, increasing the quota of human unhappiness along the way. In chapter 7, Freud suggested that the sense of guilt is produced by the turning of the aggressive instinct back upon the individual by civilization. I think we can see a kind of uncanny echo of this process at the level of the text. It's as if the sense of guilt has disrupted and fragmented the structure of the preceding chapters. It has acted in the same manner as the destructive instinct does to the combinations and structures of society which are the products of Eros. Freud's request for forgiveness, his own guilt at the unruly and disordered nature of his argument so far, can be understood in this light. In fact, the reading experience is entirely appropriate, actually, to the subject matter at hand. It's as if this titanic struggle between Eros and the death instinct has been played out in the very textual tropes and structures that we've been engaging with over the course of our readings. The desire to make amends can be seen as Freud's attempt to situate himself on the side of the angels, to bring some order to the chaos, to adopt the position of Eros. 
The first move in this direction is an attempt to answer the problem of the, un of the consciousness of guilt. The reader may have trouble, suggests Freud, in accepting the fact that guilt can be unconscious. Indeed, we commonly speak of a sense of guilt. We feel guilty for something. It arises as a result of an action that we've committed. However, through the psychoanalytic study of the neuroses, we have discovered that neurotics have a sense of guilt which is unconscious and is experienced as a sense of uneasiness, a kind of anxiety, writes Freud. In fact, in an important earlier paper entitled Criminals from a Sense of Guilt, Freud had suggested that it is this sense of uneasiness, this unconscious sense of guilt, that often impels people to commit criminal acts. As we know, for psychoanalysis, neurotic symptoms offer us an exaggeration of the internal conflicts that are universal. So this sense of uneasiness, this kind of anxiety, becomes fundamental to the human condition. It's worth quoting directly from the text here, just briefly, I think, just to realise how crucial the notion of anxiety is for Freud in this context, and indeed to the whole notion of the Freudian subject. So Freud uh, writes the following, and this is on page 135 of the Standard Edition. Here, perhaps, we may be glad to have it pointed out that the sense of guilt is at bottom nothing else but a topographical variety of anxiety. In its later phases, it coincides completely with fear of the superego. And the relations of anxiety to consciousness exhibit the same extraordinary variations. Anxiety is always present somewhere or other behind every symptom. But at one time it takes noisy possession of the whole of consciousness, while at another it conceals itself so completely that we are obliged to speak of an unconscious anxiety. Or, if we want to have a clearer psychological conscience, since anxiety is in the first instance simply a feeling of possibilities of anxiety. I think anyone interested in following up the theme of anxiety in Freud and just to see how important it is should have a read of the extremely crucial text Inhibition, Symptoms and Anxiety. Just as the sense of guilt in the individual then is not perceived as such, so in civilization, it manifests as a general malaise, the very discontent that Freud references in the title of this paper. Mm -hmm. So Freud uses this conclusive chapter to define things more sharply, terms like superego, conscience, sense of guilt, need for punishment, and uh, remorse, which he argues are often used interchangeably despite all referring to different aspects, albeit to the same state of affairs. Could you clarify for us what he means by this? Well, this seems like the next stage of Freud's attempt at making amends for these previous detours, doesn't it? This sharpening of focus. Terms which, by his own admission, have been used too loosely and interchangeably, are now set to be defined. 
All of the terms that you listed, Jamie, relate, as you said, to the same state of affairs, but denote different aspects of it. The superego, writes Freud, is an agency, whilst conscience is a function of that agency, so not the agency itself. What this function consists of is the watching over of the actions and intentions of the ego by the superego, judging them and exercising a censorship. The sense of guilt is the same thing as the severity of the conscience, or from the point of view of the psychical agencies, it relates to the harshness of the superego. The ego feels this harshness as a tension between its own strivings and that of the superego. Freud then defines the need for punishment as an instinctual manifestation on the part of the ego, which has become masochistic under the influence of the sadistic superego. It is a portion, writes Freud, of the instinct towards internal destruction present in the ego that's employed for forming an erotic attachment to the superego. The clarity and precision of Freud's argument here is, I think, quite striking. The mind, then, is a, is a site of, sadistic, of a sadistic-masochistic relationship between these two agencies, the superego and the ego. This relationship is formed as a solution to the problem that the instinct towards internal destructiveness poses for the ego. This instinct, then, is fused with eros, so that rather than destroying itself, the ego seeks punishment from the superego. Therefore, the destructive instinct in the superego and the self-destructive instinct in the ego are both satisfied, along with their erotic counterparts. So a very effective and well-packaged compromise then. The efficacy of this internal arrangement, this double satisfaction, is mirrored in the doubling of the sense of guilt, or the superimposition of the two strata of the sense of guilt, the first of which comes from fear of an external authority, whilst the second comes from fear of the internal authority. Once we understand that the sense of guilt has two different sources, we can start to work through some of the contradictions that have dogged previous discussions on the origin and function of conscience. So remorse, for example, can be thought of as existing both prior to and after the establishment of conscience. It can be both a punishment itself and can include the need for punishment. This model also helps us to solve the apparent contradiction that, on the one hand, the aggressive energy that the superego maintains is carried over from the aggression of the external authority, whilst on the other hand it is derived from the original aggression that we directed towards the external authority. In the model presented by Freud, it comes from both. In all of this, we, we see Freud's avowed dualism. There are two sources of the sense of guilt which come together and operate in unison. The tension of the sense of guilt appears as an outcome of the clash between the strivings of one agency, 
the ego, against another, the superego. Finally, we have the dualism of the drives or instincts and the primal ambivalence that this engenders. Freud concludes this section of his argument by showing how the instincts operate under the force of repression. When an instinctual demand undergoes repression, he writes, its libidinal elements are turned into symptoms and its aggressive components into a sense of guilt. So the second part of chapter 8 really foregrounds the theory of the instincts, eros and thanatos, the life drive and death drive. And he writes, Some readers of this work may further have an impression that they have heard the formula of the struggle between eros and the death instinct too often. It was alleged to characterize the process of civilization, which mankind undergoes, but it was also brought into connection with the development of the individual, and in addition, it was said to have revealed the secret of organic life in general. How does Freud go on to further develop the notion of the struggle between eros and the death instinct? Well, Freud attempts to reinforce the all-encompassing influence of this struggle, which characterises civilization, individual development, and finally, organic life in general, by reminding us that both the development of civilization and the development of the individual are vital processes, that they must therefore share in the most general characteristics of life. Just as in chapter one of the text, when he produces this wonderfully evocative and fascinating archaeological metaphor, Freud now draws a, an astronomical metaphor to illustrate the connection between the individual and civilization. And it's worth reading this paragraph in full, I think. Um, and this comes from the top of page 141 in the Standard Edition. So Freud writes, Just as a planet revolves around a central body, as well as rotating on its own axis, so the human individual takes part in the course of development of mankind at the same time as he pursues his own path in life. But to our dull eyes... The play of forces in the heavens seems fixed in a never-changing order. In the field of organic life, we can still see how the forces contend with one another, and how the effects of the conflict are continually changing. So also the two urges, the one towards personal happiness and the other towards union with other human beings, must struggle with each other in every individual. And so, also, the two processes of individual and of cultural development must stand in hostile opposition to each other and mutually dispute the ground. But this struggle between the individual and society is not a derivative of the contradiction, probably an irreconcilable one, between the primal instincts of eros and death. It is a dispute within the economics of the libido, comparable to the contest concerning the distribution of libido between ego and objects. And it does admit of an eventual accommodation in the individual, as it may be hoped, it will also do in the future of civilization. 
however much that civilization may oppress the life of the individual today. Another beautiful description, I think. But importantly, the conflict between the one urge towards personal happiness and the other towards union with other human beings is not, according to Freud, a derivative of the struggle between Eros and the death instinct, but takes place within the economics of the libido. Again, there, there seems to be a, a kind of delay here to Freud's argument. Just when we thought that we would be entering into a discussion of Eros and the death instinct, we're brought back to the level of the libido. Freud is surprisingly sanguine here, actually. He suggests that this struggle may well prove to find an optimal compromise in the future of civilization. Just as the contest concerning the distribution of the libido between ego and objects does in the individual. Whilst the struggle between the demands of the individual and that of civilization may hopefully lead to an optimal balance of forces, at least as our dull eyes might perceive it, the struggle between Eros and death, which Freud will, will revisit in the final session of this chapter, is, he writes, probably an irreconcilable one. In the spirit of this overlapping, Freud goes on to explore the cultural superego from the individual superego. How does this argument play out? Yeah, well, where the foregoing remarks had kind of highlighted the struggle between the demands of the individual and that of civilization, which is situated at the level of the libido. The discussion that follows, in which he draws a comparison between the individual and the cultural superego, really allows Freud to approach once again the original site of struggle, that which takes place between Eros and the death instinct. The community then also has a superego, the origin of which is similar to that of the individual. It is based, writes Freud, on the impression left behind by the personalities of great leaders. These great leaders showed an overwhelming force of mind, in which one of the human impulsions has found its strongest and purest and therefore one of its most one-sided expressions. On the model of the primal father, these great personalities come to fashion the cultural demands of a civilization. We might think of how Stalin, the near embodiment of the one-sidedness of the aggressive instinct, was remembered nostalgically as a symbol of strength and love for many people who mourned the downfall of the Soviet Union, according to Svetlana Alexievich's brilliant work of extended reportage, Secondhand Time. Freud draws on Jesus Christ as an example of a representative of the impulse of Eros. Where we could think of Stalin as the terrifying authority figure, Jesus Christ represents the violence that was directed towards himself. The result of this violence is reflected in the setting up of strict ideal demands, disobedience to which is visited with the fear of conscience. In the group, 
the precepts of the prevailing cultural superego can be easily observed, whereas in the individual, the demands of the superego often remain unconscious to the ego. All it is aware of is the tension that arises under the reproaches of the superego. Therefore, as Freud had suggested in Group Psychology and the Analysis of the Ego, the study of group phenomena can help shed light on the inner world of the individual. Once again, Freud now returns to the commandment, love thy neighbour as thyself, to show us how the cultural superego, just as in the case of the individual superego, asks the impossible of us. Just like the individual superego, the cultural superego acts in a thoroughly unpsychological manner. It presumes that the ego is strong enough to have complete mastery over the id, and is able to completely disregard the dictates of the pleasure principle. But as well as being a clear example of the unpsychological nature of the cultural superego, the injunction to love thy neighbour as thyself is the strongest defence against human aggressiveness. Whereas, from a therapeutic point of view, we might often work to soften the harshness of the superego, the commandment to love thy neighbour as thyself is almost characterised as a kind of necessary evil. What a potent obstacle to civilization aggressiveness must be if the defence against it can cause as much unhappiness as aggressiveness itself, writes Freud. Thinking back on his previous discussions on the nature of human happiness in society, we will remember that he questioned whether the work of civilization can be thought of in terms of an increase in human happiness. This question, which was never really answered properly, appears again here, I think. We might start, we might start to wonder whether it's all worth it, whether the project of civilization is really worth the payoff of the sense of guilt and the harshness of the cultural superego, which has been developed to such an extent that we might describe whole societies, even the whole of humankind, as neurotic. Whilst Freud refrains from making such a judgment for the sake of therapeutic practice, he clearly countenances such a position from a purely theoretical viewpoint. Wow, we're coming to the end of the text now. And I think it's most important that we simply read that uh, these final few paragraphs together. Freud writes, For a wide variety of reasons, it is very far from my intention to express an opinion upon the value of human civilization. I have endeavoured to guard myself against the enthusiastic prejudice which holds that our civilization is the most precious thing that we possess or could acquire, and that its path will necessarily lead to heights of unimagined perfection. I can at least listen without indignation to the critic who is of the opinion that when one surveys the claim of cultural endeavour and the means it employs, 
one is bound to come to the conclusion the whole effort is not worth the trouble, and that the outcome of it can only be a state of affairs which the individual will be unable to tolerate. My impartiality is made all the easier to me by my knowing very little about all these things. One thing only do I know for certain, and that is that man's judgment of value followed directly his wishes for happiness, that, accordingly, they are an attempt to support his illusions with arguments. I should find it very understandable if someone were to point out the obligatory nature of the course of human civilization, and were to say, for instance, that the tendencies to a restriction of sexual life, or to the institution of a humanitarian ideal at the expense of natural selection, were developmental trends which cannot be averted or turned aside and to which it is best for us to yield as though we, they were necessities of nature. I know, too, the objection that can be made against this, to the effect that, in the history of mankind, ten, trends such as these, which were considered unsurmountable, have often been thrown aside and replaced by other trends. Thus I have not the courage to rise up before my fellow men as a prophet, and I bow to their reproach, that I can offer them no consolation. For at bottom, that is what they are all demanding, the, wild, the wildest revolutionaries no less passionately than the most virtuous believers. The fateful question for the human species seems to me to be whether and to what extent their cultural development will succeed in mastering the disturbance of their communal life by the human instinct of aggression and self-destruction. It may be that in this respect, precisely the present time deserves a special interest. Men have gained control over the forces of nature to such an extent that, with their help, they would have no difficulty in exterminating one another to the last man. They know this, and hence comes a large part of their current unrest, their unhappiness, and their mood for anxiety. And now it is to be expected that the other of the two heavenly powers, eternal Eros, will make an effort to assert himself in the struggle with this equally immoral adversary, but who can foresee with what success and with what result? End quote. End of book. I think that is a very emotional and sobering note to end on, especially considering the state of the world right now. So we have come to the end of the paper. Tom, would you unpack this a little and leave us with some final thoughts oh, there's there's so much that could be said about the end of this text jamie but really i think i think it is best to to let have uh, freud have the final word um you know after a journey that's taken us on so many detours it really ends on this sobering note as you say freud offers us no consolation you know the reference to illusions 
reminds us of his judgment regarding the oceanic feeling that we discussed in part one of this series. He really takes up the mantle of the destroyer of illusions, as his dear friend Romain Roland had described him. We may wish for comfort. Our judgments of value, as Freud writes, follow directly our wishes for happiness. It takes a great deal of courage to stare unblinking at reality. And rather than consolation, we're left with ambivalence, the eternal struggle between the two drives. I'll read that last sentence again. And now it is to be expected that the other of the two heavenly powers, eternal Eros, will make an effort to assert himself in the struggle with his equally immortal adversary. But who can see with what success and with what result? In the final footnotes, we are told that this sentence was added in 1931, when the menace of Hitler was already becoming apparent. Sadly, it's a sentence that feels equally relevant today. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been uh, such an interesting and emotional paper to read with you. Thank you so much to everyone listening too, you know, for tuning in and sticking with us all these weeks. Um, you know, we have a we have an exciting announcement to sort of conclude our reading. To conclude Freud in Focus 3, Civilization as Discontents, we will be releasing a very special episode with Tom talking to the brilliant psychoanalyst and author Brett Carr about his recent publication, Freud's Pandemics. Now you can subscribe to be notified of when that episode is released. And a final thanks to my co-host Tom DeRose and our series producer Carolina Heller. I'm Jamie Ruers, and this has been Civilization and Its Discontents. Take care, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>